0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ, I'm Jerome McDonnell. The Trump administration decides soon on how many refugees to resettle in the U.S. in the coming year. The first year the Trump administration had a target number that was about half of a typical year in the Obama administration. This next target number is expected to cut the number in half again, maybe more. With me to talk about the implications is Mary Giovanoli. She's executive director of Refugee Council USA. It represents a coalition of refugee resettlement and advocacy groups. Thanks for joining me, Mary.
1: Thank you. I'm very glad to be here.
0: I wonder if you could say something about how uh, the president gets to decide on a number. The administration uh, gets to pick how many refugees it lets in in each year. This seems almost... um, Kind of random. It seems like usually Congress is involved, or something happens.
1: You're right. It's a very unusual um, uh, portion of immigration law. Um, In 1980, the Refugee Act was passed, and as part of the the scheme for balancing the number of refugees that come in every year, uh, Congress determined that that the president would be able to set the annual limit, which reflects an understanding that. Um, refugee policy and humanitarian assistance are issues that are largely foreign policy. And therefore, the president, the executive branch should have an important say in it. However, the Refugee Act also requires that um, the president consult with Congress about um, these decisions. And so it's a balancing act that is somewhat unusual in the immigration system overall. It seems like
0: Congress has no say.
1: It is certainly turning out to be the case, at least in this administration. I think that it has largely been an executive branch decision over the years, but there has been a level of ongoing consultation with members of Congress. There's, I think, a lot of informal consultation, but there's also a formal presentation to the judiciary committees in the House and the Senate about the um, anticipated numbers of refugees that would be admitted and from where, and that gives members of Congress an opportunity to weigh in on that before the formal final decision is made. Last year, apparently, there was no consultation at all with the members of Congress. It was really pretty much a done deal. And frankly, we're really afraid that the administration will, will do much the same again.
0: One of the things people are talking a lot about in the news is the different constellation of people who are in charge of setting the number this year. And Stephen Miller is an advisor to the president, and his colleagues seem to be more in charge at the State Department, at the National Security Council, the people who argued for a higher number the last time, which wasn't so high Um, they're all out now, and there just seems to be a different driving force going on. What do you see happening here?
1: Well, I think throughout the Trump administration, that first year, there was really um, still a lot of people who either um, career folks who were holdovers um, or – or not even holdovers. They'd probably been through several different administrations. You had some folks who had probably come in in the Obama administration, but were uh, working in the National Security Council as career staffers. Um, And then you had a number of initial political appointees who had experience in, say, the old Bush administrations. And so I think that first year, you had a little bit more of a mix. And it seems that Um, across his administration but certainly in the immigration field there has been a real consolidation of power in the second year among folks who really are Overall, looking to lower immigration levels on all fronts, and particularly when it comes to refugee and asylum and other humanitarian measures, to um, pull back dramatically. That's true not just in um, the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of State, but of course in the Department of Justice, where um, Attorney General Sessions has recently done a number of things to restrict the ability of um, individuals to apply for asylum on various uh, measures. So, across the board, we're seeing um, a, a really concerted attack on our humanitarian immigration programs.
0: How does refugees fall into that? Because they are um, people who have been vetted and cleared, and we are trying to resettle them and have them start a new life. They're people who cannot go back to the place where they were from. Mm-hmm. Uh, if all these things are true they they seem to be a different kettle of fish than all these uh, these other categories uh, is Is there a way to argue that to the administration that would make an impact?
1: Well, I think that you know frankly, your question has very deep roots, perhaps deeper than we can go into here because there's there's sort of a fundamental Uh, division in most people's minds between undocumented immigration and legal immigration. And uh, in fact, for many of the people who are in power today... Um, They simply are not fans of a high level of immigration in any situation, no matter whether it's people who come in um, without papers, who go through various legal processes once they're here, or whether it's asylum seekers, or whether it's refugees who we are um, inviting into our country with legal status. And for many years, I think people really saw those as two very different sets of issues. But under this administration, everything has really been collapsed. So the question really becomes, do we welcome? Immigrants of any kind.
0: You were in the Department of Homeland Security uh, before, uh, during the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it like from that point of view? Is is that uh, situation different than than what what we see on the outside?
1: Well, I think that particularly within the Department of Homeland Security, there is often a tension between um, the many missions that DHS has. Um, Certainly, there's the mission to uh, protect and uh, uh, ensure that our security is met and to ensure that people are safe. However, that often gets uh, in the process. We often forget that DHS is also responsible for all of the immigration issues from admitting refugees to naturalization. And sometimes the folks who um, are looking at everything through a security lens forget that there really are economic and cultural and other values in in allowing people to immigrate to this country. And when you have that tension, it really depends on who's in power in terms of where things are going to gravitate. Certainly under the Obama administration, there was a much deeper understanding of both the importance and the necessity of robust immigration and certainly robust refugee admissions. But um, it, it's, a, it's a constant struggle, I think, within DHS that uh, really kind of uh, bends towards the winds of leadership in the White House.
0: I'm talking with Mary Giovanoli. She's executive director of the Refugee Council USA, and we're talking about the Trump administration further limiting the number of refugees they admit to the U.S. The number is thought to be going down to around 25,000, possibly even lower. How does this compare with what other developed countries do? The U.S. has a, what, traditionally pretty good track record on resettling refugees?
1: Well, traditionally, the U.S. has been the leader in resettling refugees and in providing additional outside assistance to to countries that are hosting refugees sort of on the ground and near conflict zones. Um, we really will almost certainly be eclipsed by Canada this year, uh, a country that is much smaller, has a much smaller population, yet last year admitted 46,000 refugees. Um, so last year the United States admitted 53,000 refugees. So when you think about our populations and our relative uh, economic power and things like that, you can see that we are really starting to fall behind other leaders. And I, th- I don't think we'll be able to claim that we're the world leader in any case, but um, it, it is also simply a matter of our uh, not showing support to many countries who are much smaller and who are taking in a much higher percentage of refugees than the U.S. is.
0: It's always staggering to think about Lebanon, which is now one out of six, one out of five people is a refugee in Lebanon right now.
1: Um, Yes. And that's also the case in Jordan. One of six residents is is a Syrian. Um, And so those countries obviously need um, support on the ground, um, but they also need other measures of support from um, particularly the developed countries. And one of the the best ways both symbolically and um, in terms of sort of foreign policy and national security interests is to commit to resettling some refugees. The goal is always for refugees to be able to go home, but we know in many cases that's simply not possible. And so for that group of folks who need to be resettled, when the world steps up and and helps bring those folks into, into their countries, into their homes, it creates a much more cooperative and uh, an atmosphere of much more possibility, I think, for everyone to try to see um, international crises as something that we have to solve together.
0: I noticed that on your Refugee Council USA website, you are keeping score of exactly how many people and from where are we are letting in refugees? And you've we got are. you've also got us. Um, the, you've been grading the administration <laughs> and failing the administration on every month. It does not meet its uh, quota. It doesn't meet the target that it says it's going to meet. And it certainly isn't allowing Syrians, uh, the 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 source of the biggest uh, refugee crisis on the planet. They are absolutely not allowing in new Syrians.
1: That's. That's very true. There have been very few Syrians admitted this year. Um, In the last couple of weeks, maybe one Syrian came in. Um, No Somalians came in. Uh, We are at, as of August August 1st, I think 18,087 refugees in total from all over the world um, having been admitted. Um, We should have reached a number like that if we were on track to meet 45,000 back in March. Um, And so we have less than a a month to go, or we have two months to go before the refugee uh, uh, fiscal year ends. And we are so far from meeting that goal of 45,000. There's just no way that we'll approach it.
0: What does this do to the people who resettle the refugees? I I think maybe a lot of people think, well, the government helps resettle refugees, but they, they actually farm this out to a bunch of Uh, Very nice organizations that are often religiously affiliated that uh, resettle refugees in our communities here in Chicago and all across the Mm -hmm. country. And Refugee Council USA represents some of these people who will – um, you know, uh, they go out of business. These these places don't – they have refugees.
1: Well, one of the things that I think that is is really important to understand about the refugee admissions program generally is that it has been an incredibly successful public-private um, uh, model of uh, working together with the government to do a very important job. Refugee resettlement is inherently local. Um, because it's about welcoming people and bringing them um, into communities and having the communities learn from them and vice versa. Um, and so it has this this necessity of essentially having funds distributed at the federal level to a number of national organizations who are members of, of my coalition, who then in turn distribute that money to, to other organizations to. To do the work on the ground, there are different models for this, obviously, and there's different grants that Health and Human Services and other folks provide. But it is a it's a vast collection and a very complicated collection of uh, services that are that are provided. And with each cut, obviously, in the number of refugees who come in, some of those programs are cut. Some of the the people doing the services, particularly locally, um, find that they they can't continue to, to do their work. And the thing that is so important about this is that to a person, when you talk to these organizations, what they will start with is this isn't about us. This is about the refugee program. This is about the fact that when we cut Agencies, Yes, jobs may be lost, but what's really being lost is capacity and expertise to help people. And our folks will have to find work elsewhere. And then when we need them because we have a new surge of refugees or we have new decisions or new players in the White House, they won't be there. So we are creating a crisis, not only for the moment, but one that will continue to grow because we are eliminating the capacity and the infrastructure necessary to have a robust program.
0: What do you think people can do about this?
1: Oh, there's many things that people can do. You need to really right now let your members of Congress, let the White House, let Secretary Pompeo know that you support a robust refugee program. We have the capacity and we have the appropriations, we have the funding to invite at least 75,000 refugees to the United States in the, in the coming year. Congress has continued to keep the numbers high, even though the president has refused to do so. So we have the capacity. And so this is a critical moment. If we lose that, if we don't demand a much higher number, we um, really risk beginning to um, collapse the refugee program in ways that it will take years to recover from.
0: What do you think all this has done to the reputation of refugees in this country?
1: Well, you know, it's a funny thing. Uh, I think that refugees are one of those issues that many people never pay attention to. You know, they probably have neighbors who are refugees or um, colleagues at church or or somewhere else, but they just know them as the the person down the street who um, they barbecue with or the, the person who has the dry cleaning business down the street or something. And when you start hearing people's stories, when you start hearing what they've gone through to get to the United States and how committed they are to the U.S. because of their unique experience, I think it really opens people's eyes to how important um, this this program is. Um, I think it's had the opposite effect in terms of I don't think people are scared of refugees. I think the rhetoric is trying to make us scared of each other, and refugees just become the the sort of easy scapegoat.
0: Mary Giovanoli is the executive director of Refugee Council USA. It represents a coalition of refugee resettlement and advocacy groups. And we've been talking about the Trump administration. They're going to decide on a target number for refugees to resettle in the coming year. It is expected to be half of what it is now, which was half of what was going on in the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. Thanks a lot for joining us, Mary. Thank you. After the break, film contributor Milo Stalik talks with the by people behind the new documentary about fashion icon Alexander McQueen. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Film contributor Milo Stalic from Facets believes fashion documentaries are a worn-out genre, but says one new film breaks the mold. The documentary McQueen looks at the trailblazing life, craft, and career of fashion icon Alexander McQueen. He took his own life in 2010 at the age of 40. McQueen once said that every fashion designer wants to create an illusion, to create things that disturb people. In that spirit, the film's co-directors Ian Bonote and Peter Ategi were determined not to make another typical fashion film. Milos chatted with them about McQueen's life and their new film, McQueen Opens Today at the Landmark Century Center Cinema in Chicago.
2: Alexander McQueen rose from a working-class background to become one of the most famous and accomplished fashion designers in the world. And then he died a very tragic death by suicide. And so in the wake of his death, he became an even larger mythical-type figure. Part of it was also a huge exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum, which brought more fame to him. So how do you, Ian Bonhot and Peter Atkey, the co-directors of the new film called McQueen, tackle an individual who is already a myth. And part of that was access to some remarkable home movie footage. This is
3: Peter
4: speaking. Yes, we're very excited to have been able to access some very, very special footage and recordings as well as photographs. And for us, all of this, as you call it, home footage brings you closer to Lee and it shows aspects of Lee that loads of people might not have seen before. When you consume the fashion or the myth, as you mentioned earlier, you might not know all of the details, the intricacies of the character and how the genius came to actually create. So for us, it was great to get access to all of that, to see all you know, the fun, the naughty, the larger-than-life, as well as the sensitive and caring human being.
2: Because in this kind of mythology of genius, the one thing which was a revelation from your film is what a great sense of humor he had.
4: Yeah, he
3: did. I mean, he loved to play pranks on people. He had the most fantastic sort of laugh. He was a bit of an anarchist, and he loved sort of getting a rise out of people. And whenever he did, you'd hear this sort of huge guffaw from him. Funnily enough, that's one of the things that all his friends who contributed to the film, the first thing they say after they see the film is, It's so great to hear him laugh again. Also, just seeing him larking about and and with his dogs. He's always with the dogs in the home movie footage right the way through the film, and there are lovely moments where he actually brings the dogs out onto the catwalk with him.
2: Well, of course, fashion is a big element of the film because this is what he created. What, to you, was unique about Alexander McQueen's fashion?
4: I mean, there's many things, but it's the combination of traditional futuristic his knowledge very early on in his career he mastered tailoring and he went on a journey to learn all of the crafts and you know he said it himself give me more give me give me he wanted to learn more and more all the time so I think it's his combination of crafts, his combination of bringing loads of inspiration from many different sources books literature films Photograph, painting and combining that and inspiration from loads of different cultures as well. And his obsession as well of reinventing things and, you know, he, he looked towards the future as well. He really was a visionary, but as well a very strong respect for the traditional. You couldn't create something new without already knowing the traditional and knowing the history of everything.
2: You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milos speaking with filmmakers Ian Bonnot and Peter Etabgy, whose new film about fashion designer Alexander McQueen is called McQueen and opens today. The shows that Alexander McQueen staged, I think, really elevated the whole idea of a fashion show because they really became like huge theatrical, very inventive performances, many of which, of course, you capture in the film.
3: That's right. When we started, we found this several times, Lee saying things like, if you want to know who I am, then look at my work. And at the center of his work were these extraordinary set piece fashion shows that he produced. And we felt that we could take um, a handful of those shows because he produced so much there was no way we could do them all that we could take a handful of some of the most iconic ones or some of the shows that we felt really represented turning points in his life and his career or, or in his art history or expressed things about his own experience and biography that we could extrapolate from looking at the shows so we structured the film around these shows that they are absolutely extraordinary to watch. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we always felt that this had to be a movie rather than um, a television documentary. Because as soon as you sort of like see the archive of these shows, uh, they are larger than life in every respect. And they are also, you know, something you don't necessarily associate with fashion shows. They are actually very emotional they have these extraordinary sort of moments that, you know, several people have said, looking at one show in particular, it made me cry. And it's absolutely true. They really do get an emotional um, response from audiences, even the audience is not necessarily interested in fashion.
2: And you have already had a love for fashion, a love for Alexander McQueen and interest. How did you come to this subject matter?
4: Um, we had different sort of Connection without knowing Alexander McQueen in person. We had came to it from different angles. Me, Ian, I had worked within the fashion world. I was working in short form. I had made a one feature film, but I never made a doc, but I had worked quite extensively for a brand called Net Aporte, and I had done a lot of interviews and a lot of small docs, but never feature-length docs about some of the designers they were working with. And yes, I had a, a very strong interest in fashion, but at the same time, we never set out to make a fashion film per se. What interested us the most was actually the story of the rights to riches and about this anarchist man, as Peter said, taking over such an elitist, uh, small guarded world, which is the top of the fashion world. And as filmmakers, what's really interesting, we always felt that we wanted to put emotion, like Lee did, at the center of the narrative of our film. You know, we had a motto saying, emotion of uh, information because you know you could just go on and spell out all of the events that happened in his life all of the work he's done but what we wanted we wanted really the audience watching the movie to go on a journey with Lee and really Get the thrill of the early parts of his career and feel the down when he started going downhill. Despite a little bit of connection towards fashion, it was never set up from our fashion knowledge or interest.
3: And from my point of view, so, you know, the last documentary that I worked on as a writer was a film about Marlon Brando called "Listen to Me, Marlon." And when we finished, I love that, that film. I love that film. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> and, and you know, it, but it's a difficult one to follow. And I spent a good year and a half sort of like thinking about what would be a great subject. And McQueen seemed absolutely right when we started talking about it because... There are certain sort of similarities with Brando's story in in a sense. They both came from a world that was um, nothing to do with the world that they wound up working in. So there's an interesting kind of story of culture clash with McQueen, you know, that he was a bit of a misfit, both in his own world, because he was growing up both gay and wanting to do fashion in a working class, blue collar sort of background. And then when he got into the fashion business, he was so different from everybody else who usually made it in that world. Uh, McQueen was something of a prodigy, um, someone who took the time and effort, as Ian was saying earlier, to master his craft in every possible way, but then could sort of like turn it inside out and subvert it and do really interesting things that no one had ever seen before with it.
2: Well, the documentary film about fashion and about designers is almost a mini-genre these days. It's like films about food were at one point we've got you know, films about Marc Jacobs, uh, Dries van Noten, a number of Saint Laurent films, Dior and I, and usually the structure of these films is, of course, interviews, the fashion shows, this whole kind of concept, art versus commerce, the pressure that designers operate under, which of course seem insurmountable and incredible. But you really started out with a much more kind of a visual concept for the film, because it's very beautiful to watch from the very beginning. It doesn't just dive right there into this kind of stereotype.
4: Yes, correct. Um, Peter and I, when we came to the, the project, we got approached. One of the things we were discussing with everybody involved and the distributor is that we wanted to make a visually striking piece that deserved to be on, you know, in the cinema screen. And you know, how might be pushing it, but we feel that the best way to experience this movie because of the emotion it, it triggers in people but as well for the, the visual experience and even the sonic experience from Michael Nyman music is best lived and experienced with loads of people on the cinema screen but you know, you mentioned that sort of genre fashion film when we came to the project we never ever thought of it as a fashion film our comparables were more movies like Amy, Senna, mm. Pina the Jim Vendors Pina Bouch film mm. and that's why we very much avoided to talk to the fashion intelligentsia, as such, we we avoided the commentators and we avoided the specialists because we felt that they have talk in fashion firm, and we felt that they would be just describing things about Lee that people could read reading Vogue or any other fashion publication. We really wanted to go, as Peter says, sometime behind the curtain and, and reveal, you know, peel out the different layers to reveal who Lee was. And we felt for that, you know, talking to the family or the close friends or the close collaborators was way more important. Even if they were not known in their own rights by the public, they were the one, the closest to Lee and the most capable of making us relive what you meant to know Lee.
2: You're listening to Worldview. I'm Eloy speaking with filmmakers Ian Bonot and Peter etat whose new film about Alexander McQueen is called McQueen. The one big strand in Alexander McQueen's life was the character of Isabella Blow, which was very troubled because she claims to have discovered him. She was certainly a very big presence in his life. Uh, then she died tragically. Her husband is interviewed quite a bit in your film. How did you find this kind of troubled relationship and your ability to interpret it?
3: Well, you know, it's a kind of love story, really. You know, we've talked a lot about emotions, and I think it's very much at the emotional heart of the film. Because um, although Lee had this prodigious talent and ability and craftsmanship that he developed painstakingly over a sort of six-year apprenticeship, There was one missing part of the jigsaw puzzle, which was somebody who could champion him. And Isabella, as soon as she saw his work at his graduation show at St. Martin's School of Art, as soon as she saw it, she realized before anyone else, she saw it, no one else saw it really at that point. Um, She saw that this boy could be, as she put it, the Yves Saint Laurent of the um, 21st century. And she made it her mission to connect him to everyone and also not just to sort of like make sure that he was connected, but also to school him in fine art and the history of art and sort of show him things that maybe he had never seen before. And they were both incredibly unconventional people. The ultimate odd couple. She came from a sort of like aristocratic background. He came from this sort of blue collar background. And yet because they both felt like outsiders, I think, they were kind of totally drawn to each other and they didn't play by anyone else's rules. I think they loved that in each other as well. So she did an immense amount for him early on in his career. There was a sort of turning point when Lee became the star designer and he got this incredible opportunity to head up a French haute couture house. And at that point, things began to go awry, is a story that we sort of like tell in the film. But I think it's important to say that they were never completely estranged. The kind of love between them continued. And I think that it's not a stretch at all to say that Isabella's death was something that profoundly moved and changed McQueen and contributed to his own end without any doubt.
2: So having spent two years with McQueen, what mystery remains for you? 15 months, actually. 15 months, okay.
4: <laughs> All right. You work hard. Um, you know, I mean, it's an interesting point because we wish we had that much time, but um, at the same time, this sort of... Adrenaline. Adrenaline and constant, you know, working from our guts, etc., felt a little bit like what McQueen would have done in the past. But you, you question about what secret remains. Um, what mystery? What mystery? I mean, this
3: I don't think that a great mystery remains. I think some people expect us to come up with a single answer as to why he decided to end it all at the peak of his powers. The truth is much more multi-layered, as I really hope that we show in the film. And Some people want to know, well, you know, who was he? Was he one type of person rather than another type of person? I think we show, again, the complexity of the man. I mean, the mysteries, to me, are the kind of mysteries of the human condition. They're not specific things that I would say, oh, we never found that out. There was some rosebud that we never revealed. On the contrary, I think that we've done our work very thoroughly. We've certainly researched the project. We've sort of obviously met with both the people who appear in the film and many people who didn't appear in the film, but gave us a lot of their time to sort of talk about Lee so
4: that we understood him fully. And I really think that one of the theme or strand that we had in the film is the transformation from Lee to Alexander. But that transformation never fully Finished. I think what happened later on in in Lee's life is there was those two characters that as any human being, which is extremely successful and almost start cultivating an icon status, you spend your life trying to combine the two things and find peace in your creativity, in your business and in your personal life. And I think what... Peter and I wanted to expose is that it's extremely hard to manage to correlate all those elements and size of yourself. I don't think there's absolutely a mystery, but there's a lot of different questions that I still have that would never get answered fully. But we wanted to be able to expose as much as we found out and let the audience make up their own mind. We we like when people come out of the cinema not having been spoon-fed. They still their own thoughts and their own questioning and their own thinking process that they can apply to what they've just witnessed, watched and experienced.
2: Well, and one thing that comes through from your film is this incredible beauty of his creations and really the power of his imagination.
4: Correct. And one thing I love is one time with Peter at our premiere in Tribeca in New York a few months back, we just found ourselves, it was the first time we properly show it to the public, and we both found ourselves backstage before being introduced to actually just realize that, you know, we miss him because we spend a lot of time and and you start discovering someone that, you know, was an extraordinary person, uh, living in extraordinary times and managing to create absolutely amazing work. You know, we do still miss him.
2: You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stelic and I've been speaking with filmmakers Ian Bonhot and Peter Etardgui whose new film is McQueen and opens today. Thank you very much.
3: Thank Thank you. you.
0: And you can catch McQueen at the Landmark Century Center Cinema in Chicago. When we come back, Nari Safavi takes us around the world on Weekend Passport. He has some suggestions on how you can enjoy an international weekend in Chicago. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where our global citizen friend Nari Safavi suggests ways that you can have a international good time this weekend. Nari, good to see you. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here. Where are we going first?
5: We're going to go to Syria today and uh, experience some literary uh, brilliance from Syria. But before that, I wanted to mention that there will be an event going on this weekend called Peace in the Preserves, a community call to reject racism and celebrate. And this is about what happened with that Puerto Rican-American woman in the forest preserve recently here in Chicago uh, and uh, being uh, told go back to her country and all of that. A group of global group of activists are getting together in the Chicago Forest Preserves this weekend and they're gonna be drumming and there will be global sounds going on as a means of protesting and trying to raise awareness for that kind of an issue.
0: So it sounds like fun. That is tonight from 5 to 8 p.m. and you can help reject hate crimes and respond to a community event celebrating diversity there on the northwest side of Chicago at the Caldwell Woods there on Devon Avenue. Uh, at five o'clock, it is uh, the Funkadaisy group is going to have uh, drumming, and then at six thirty, there's the Jesse White Tumblers and uh, the Puerto Rican agendas. It at seven o'clock, so that's going to be good.
5: Absolutely, and the second thing we're going to take a global tour of. Uh, African diaspora with the Black Harvest Film Festival going on at the Gene Cisco Film Center It's opening this weekend and will be going on all of August all of the month of August and the highlight of this weekend is actually a film about Muhammad Ali and Dick Cavett and the relationship that they had. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't know that they had that kind of a friendship. But uh, there will be a screening of that going on this weekend. And Dick Cavett is going to be there on Sunday at 5 p.m. How terrific (laughs) is that? Exactly. This is going to be really cool. And there will be all kinds of Chicago uh, celebrities and media people, sports people will be there. And I guess Jim Rose of Channel 7 will be interviewing Dick Cavett over there.
0: And I looked on the website and it doesn't say that it's sold out. So that's on Sunday, August 5th at 5 p.m. And then the film shows also on Monday with the director at that appearance as well. So that's the. Get your
5: tickets while you (laughs) can. Yeah. That's the
0: Ali and Cavett Tale of the Tape, apparently a close friendship for 53 years. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a part of the Black Harvest Film Festival. Yes. Now we're going to go to Syria, Nari? And now we're going to go to
5: Syria, and there will be uh, uh, actually—I'm very proud to have uh, a friend, Osama al-Omar, who is a really a great writer from Syria, originally left Syria in 2008. And he is a part of the Cities of uh, Refuge and Cities uh, uh, program that's uh, over in Pittsburgh, and uh, he will be here tonight actually at the bookseller in the lincoln square at 7 p.m forty-seven, forty-eight, north lincoln avenue and he will be doing a reading and a book event over there tonight uh so i'm
6: very happy to have him over here today
0: osama great to meet you
6: thank you thank you so much i'm really so happy to be here thank you for the invitation
0: tell us a little about yourself you came um to the united states in 2008 and is that true
6: I first came to the States on October two thousand eight, and I I came actually to Chicago, right here, right here. Uh, I loved Chicago; it's a great city. Uh, at the beginning, uh, I didn't know what to do. I uh, I applied everywhere to find a job. Uh, but nobody responded to me. And
0: you were already an accomplished writer in Syria. You were well known. You you were making a living as a accomplished
6: writer. At least exactly, I was full time writer. Uh, I published four books in Arabic. So I wanted to publish my books here uh, in the states. We
0: didn't let that happen, did we?
5: <laughs> we took a little while with that. Uh,
6: only at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs>
5: but you ended up driving a cab, uh, yes, I guess. Yes, actually. At, at the I'm end, doing writing in between fares. <laughs> between fares, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
6: uh, beside translation with my co-translator, C.J. Collins. C.J. Collins, yeah. I first met him in Damascus in 2006. hmm uh-huh. So I stayed at the beginning. I stayed in my cousin's house for seven months. I did not know what to do. So eventually, he he uh, asked me to drive a cab. I uh, I said no way. It's impossible. Uh, I cannot imagine that. But after three days from that conversation, I was driving a yellow cab uh, in uh, by Rosemont train station. Mm. Uh, and, and this uh,
5: is before all the Uber and everything else. Before, gets, before yeah. Uber, yeah. yeah, yeah.
6: I was working seven days a week, uh, almost ten, eleven hours a day. Uh-huh. It was really hardship for me. I felt as if I, I lost uh, my my spirit as a writer. Uh-huh.
0: How'd you get it back? Quit driving a cab. <laughs> uh,
6: for for my first year, I couldn't write a word. I I forgot uh, my writing, I forgot myself, I was only driving. Uh, After that year I started to to go back to my writing step by step, Uh, actually I forced myself to do that. I was looking for the future, I was looking for my new books, Mm -hmm. translated books into English.
5: And in between all of this, all of a sudden, the New Yorker story happens. Uh, a writer who, from New Yorker finds out about you and finds you in Chicago and does a story about you.
6: <laughs> yeah, after I published my first book in English. Oh,
5: you did. Okay, that's that, that, that's <laughs> on that. two
6: thousand fourteen.
5: Okay, okay, so yeah. that's that's that comes much later then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Great. So, uh, what what would you say is the difference between being a writer in America and being a writer mm. in Syria? Besides the challenges, your approach to the creative process, facing the blank page, uh, once you got over the shock of being in America, how did you was your approach to being a writer any different and also writing in Arabic and English well, what, is there a difference for you?
6: Uh, r- writing and publishing in America is much more complicated than writing and uh, publish in, in Syria. It's a very big country. it's not easy to find publisher. I need agent. First of all, right. we, we don't have uh, such a uh, system. We don't have literary agents mm-hmm. in, in the Middle East or in Syria. In the U.S., you need a ag- literary agent. Uh, but <laughs> I, I was lucky. I got uh, my agent. Uh, uh, very, f- It was very fast process. Okay, good. It was a very fast process. Uh, and she published my first book uh, on 2014 <laughs> by New Directions. Uh, after publishing that book I got uh, very good reviews very good reviews Mm -hmm. but I uh, I couldn't quit driving cab at the same time. <laughs> I see. <laughs> I, and I can tell you I became the – I was the worst cab driver not only in the States but in the whole world. <laughs> customers, I think ask, I've
0: been in your cab. <laughs> <laughs> maybe.
6: <laughs> customers ask me go east, I go west, go north, I go south. I know nothing about east, west or north. In Syria we used to say take a left, take a right, mm-hmm. take, uh, that's it. In a city like Chicago – and mm-hmm. I, at the beginning I forgot to get my GPS – Oh. It was a disaster for me. So it, I, see. I, I I have thousands of uh, very funny uh, stories with customers.
5: Would you, like, <laughs> would you like to read us some of those funny stories?
6: Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I, uh, I like to read the, this story. It's about... Uh, it's entitled The Pride of Garbage. Okay. When the owner of the house picked up the bag of garbage and headed out to the street to throw it in the dumpster. The bag was overwhelmed with the fear that she would be put side by side with her companions. But when the man placed her on top of all the others, she became intoxicated with her greatness and looked down at them with disdain. Wow!
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, um, explain a little bit about how your writing style and and what it is, because it's it's different than uh, a lot of Western what we would call short stories and things like that. It's more like poetry.
6: Actually, when I first started writing this style. Uh, I didn't know that they call it very short stories. I just wanted to express my feelings, my ideas uh until now i I don't care about genre. I just want want to be honest with myself and with my reader uh i be- because i live I believe that uh, creativity is honesty, despite genre. Later, I was told they call this very short stories. It's okay.
0: <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> 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 call it what you will. What did they call it in Syria?
6: Uh, uh, in Arabic, al-qissa al-qasira jidan, very short story. In the States, they call it flash fiction.
5: Would you like to soft- read something for us in Arabic to have us get the feeling of the music? Maybe of, the
6: same one? Of course. Uh, this one in English called Free Elections. I'll read it in Arabic. Okay, my limited Arabic it gives me an idea why this. is written in English.
5: Free
6: elections when the slaves re-elected their executioner entirely of their own accord and without any pressure from anyone, I understood that it was still very early to be talking about democracy and human dignity.
0: Very good. We're talking with Osama al-Omar. He's a Syrian-American mm-hmm. author and poet. And his latest book is The Teeth of the Comb and Other Short Stories. He will be at the Bookseller on Lincoln Avenue at 7 p.m. tonight. And you can see him there and uh, hear more stories. Uh, now, a poem like that, um, it seems to apply to a lot of places, doesn't it? It's this kind of... Uh, It's got some universal uh, values.
6: It was on purpose. I did that on purpose because uh, most of my stories about uh, freedom of expression, about democracy, about dictatorship, about lack of democracy. So I think uh, there's dictatorship not only in Syria, not only in the Middle East. We We can face dictatorship anywhere, anytime. So I did that on purpose to talk. I wanted to talk about these issues for everyone, to everyone. You left Syria a little before the war uh, started? Three years before the war. And And I left it because of political reasons.
0: And um, do you want to tell us about that or uh, how how that happened? I mean, you're writing a book, a novel now on Syria.
6: About the Syrian war. Uh, I left Syria because of... One of my very 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 short stories. <laughs> it, it, it looks funny story, but uh, that's what happened. The wrong
5: wa- person heard it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
6: it, it was uh, that story. It was entitled "The Boot." I was talking about uh, this story uh, about how military boot can controls our life and how it can destroys our our life. Uh, one of my friends, and he was editor published this story in his uh, journal. Next day, uh, the very next day, he called, he gave me a call, and he said, the, the Syrian intelligence, intelligence called me, and they're asking about you, where is this writer? Is, uh, uh, is he lives inside Syria or outside Syria? So he told me, obviously, they are looking for you. And this happened only two months from co- my coming to the States. Luckily, at that time, I got my American visa. But I, I did my best to to avoid public places. So once I get to the airport and uh, get my boarding pass, I, I sighed with the great happiness. And since that day I'm here, I couldn't go back at all.
0: I understand your place in Syria got
6: destroyed during the war, your, home,
0: your my, hometown.
6: Area. My apartment was destroyed and I lost... Uh, Everything actually, I left most of my stuff there, including unpublished novel and uh, six or seven um, manuscripts, short stories, and poems uh, because nobody imagined this will happen
0: what's the the novel you're writing um, How do you encapsulate what's happened because it just is um, a never ending story of um, my well, recent novel? Yeah, really? yeah, the novel you're writing now about uh, uh,
6: Syria. It describing, I'm describing uh, the Syrian war. But since I left Syria three years before the war, uh, I need more information about it. I was not eyewitness. I'm working every day on it. I'm, uh, but I'm not only describing the war in Syria. I'm describing life here as an exile exile uh, writer or exile person. I'm describing two lives, war and exile.
0: Well, we'll look forward to seeing that. And it has been a pleasure meeting you, Osama al-Omar, Syrian author and poet. His latest book is The Teeth of the Comb and Other Short Stories. And you can see him uh, tonight at 7 p.m. at the Bookseller on Lincoln Avenue. Great meeting you. Thanks for joining us. Congratulations on your new book.
6: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: Nari Safavi, have yourself a great weekend.
5: A great weekend. I'll be seeing you tomorrow at Theater Y Fundraiser with Osama. Other three of us will be there. If you guys cannot catch Osama tonight, go to the Theater Y website. You can come to their fundraiser tomorrow night.
0: All right. uh, Monday on Worldview, we're going to be talking about our trade relationship with other countries like China. Hope you can join us Monday for Worldview. Worldviews produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Shazmin Hussein and Viviana Garcia-Blanco for production assistance. Mike Gilmore engineered today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.